This is part two of two with Dr. Kanika Sims. In part one, we did a crash course in the history of health inequity in the United States. And in this interview, we talk about what as physicians we can do to help close the gap. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. We talk a lot about side gigs on this show. So if your side gig or even your main gig is a medical technology product that you want to pitch, or you're even in the early stages of product development, you could benefit from consulting with Charm Economics. They use government data, peer-reviewed journals, and trade literature to support and enhance your business model at all stages. Whether an early stage pitch deck creation, return on investment modeling, or peer-reviewed article production, they can help. See how Charm Economics can transform your business development today so you can focus on building your product, growing your network, and implementing your vision. Check them out at charmeconomics.com. Dr. Kanika Sims, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been really excited. I'm looking forward to part two. So it's nice to be here. So this is part two of two. So those who didn't hear the first part of the episode, this is Dr. Kanika Sims. She's a hospitalist and assistant professor of hospital medicine at Morehouse School of Medicine. She's the CEO of Invest Inclusion and the author of Diversity is not a dirty word. So check out the first episode that was, at this point, I think two months ago. The first part, we talked about defining healthcare disparities and the history of healthcare disparities in America. And today we're going to be talking about how do we address them? So huge topic that we're going to try and fit into a 30-minute episode. Let's see what we can do. So how would you want to start? Do you want to start with the micro or the macro? Like how do we as individual practitioners, or would you like to start with how you'd like to see systems change? This is challenging for me because it's hard to believe that we can change any of this. I'm here because I like to believe that we can, but we will start wherever you, where do you want us to start? Okay. So let's start macro. Let's start macro and then we'll kind of work our way narrower. So like systemic changes. We can, let's start with like medical school, in our medical training. How should, what would you like to see changed in the curriculum? Like a big thing that's out there now is that we were taught skin disorders on what they look like on light skin, on white skin. And we know that a lot of diagnoses are being missed because they present differently on darker skin. So that's something that definitely needs to change. Is there anything else that you remember for your medical school curriculum that you want to see taught different? I mean, so I think the the big issue is that there are still just so many biases. So the individuals writing the curriculum, they have biases. The professors, I'm a professor of medicine, I have biases. And so what's really interesting is although that we have learned, you know, in terms of like genetic differences, gen- Genetically, you and I, as a as me as a black woman, you as a white man, we may have more in common genetically than I may with another black woman. So although we know like at the gene level, we are much more alike than we are different, students are still being taught that there, you know, that there are certain diseases and the manifestation is different amongst the black population. Some of the things that are still unspoken are that, well, Black people have poor outcomes because they're impoverished, because they need be- greater, better health literacy, 
um, you know, all of these things, it becomes a problem with the Black community. And there's not enough discussion about the problem with the system. And so I think until we start looking at things from a system perspective in the medical school curriculum, then it continues to be an individual problem. And then if we're making it an individual problem, the problem becomes a problem with the Black patient and not a problem with the system. Got it. And like GFR, for instance, right? My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, glomerular, I'm an old Filtration, right? Glomerular yes. filtration, right? Right. There was like a different way to calculate that for black patients versus versus white patients. Is that still being taught? Is that still being used? You know, I'm not sure about that. I do remember that we did take into consideration African-Americans. But, you know, a more recent one that I was just listening to, and this blew my mind. So we know about the higher maternal morbidity and mortality with black women versus white women. I think that's been stated plenty of times. It's everywhere. It's clear. Black women are at higher risk of dying in pregnancy and childbirth, period. So I was reading somewhere, which was fascinating to me, and which we also know that if you have a C-section, you're at much higher rate of death than if you have a vaginal delivery. What they started doing, so if you're familiar with VBACs, I know my, my OBs out there, of course. So vaginal, del- vaginal births after a C-section. So in order to determine whether or not somebody will qualify for a vaginal birth after a C-section, there's a scoring calculator that you use. And what we know is it's much safer for you to have a vaginal delivery than it is a C-section. It is even safer for you to have a vaginal birth after C-section than it is to have just another C-section, which is why they started trying to have what we call VBACs. Well, the scoring calculator put in race. And if you were a Black person, if you're African-American, it raised your score. So just the very act all other things being the same, the very act of being African-American, it raised your score. And because of that score, doctors would say, you don't qualify for a VBAC. You have to have a C-section. And so as a result, Black women were much more likely to be forced to have C-sections instead of being able to deliver vaginally, even though having a C-section is more dangerous, which of course led to worse outcomes. And so if you look at this, they've recently redid the calculator. Race is no longer a factor in the calculator. And when I heard this, it blew my mind. And I think the part that is so tragic about this is that you have physicians who are using these calculators. They're completely unaware that race is being factored in erroneously, right? And so because of these calculators that some of us hold as gospel, we make decisions based on these calculators that then result in worse outcomes for our patients. And so those are the places where when we talk about systemic issues and we talk about biases are in our curriculum, these biases are in our research protocols, these biases are in our calculators that we use to determine the care that we give to patients. And so when I say that, sometimes I just lose hope is because I am no different. I probably, I know I've used that calculator for GFR that included, you know, race. And I just assume it's a validated instrument. This is what we use. This is what we do. And it really becomes, it can be overwhelming 
when you think about how you can inadvertently harm a patient through no fault of your own because of the system that's already in place. I mean, it sounds like the moment that you feel like we've pushed past something and we've made some progress a little closer towards equity, right? Then we discover something else that's out there and it just opens this other door showing that how much farther we really need to go. Yes. And so when I say, okay, so let's look at the system, but you started at medical school. I would say it starts in the community. So most people are familiar with the social determinants of health. And so the recognition that health or disease does not start at the hospital door. It doesn't start at the clinic door. It starts in the community. It starts in the home. It starts in our schools, in our workplaces. And so there's so many things that it's a complex tapestry that lead to the poor health outcomes that we have. And so when we talk about how do we, you know, address these healthcare disparities, then if we're going to do macro, it starts way before, you know, we as physicians get into medical school. It starts on the system level and within our communities. Which is what you talked about during the last episode on why you wanted to get into practicing law, even if you've, after you finish your medical degree, because you wanted to move things on this macro level. And, you know, when we're treating one patient at a time, how much progress are you really making at the macro level? When we know that health is impacted by all the things, health is impacted by, you know, the built environment. So are there grocery stores um, within walking distance or within driving distance of where you live? Or are there food deserts where you live and you don't have access to quality, healthy food? Is it safe to walk in your neighborhood? Is it, it so when we, so in my neighborhood is interesting, you know, like there's pools and there's gyms and there's walking trails and, you know, I'm in the South, so there's definitely not enough sidewalks, but the fact that I live in a place where I'm like, there's some place to actually walk to and I'm not afraid that I'm going to be harmed on my way there. It's just, so like another example, asthma. When you look at the rates of asthma, so the rates of asthma are much higher in urban areas where there's not a lot of trees because we forget that the trees actually clean our air and make our air better to breathe. And so like they can look at, from overhead, they can look and look at the tree canopy density and they can determine what the, they can tell where there are going to be higher levels of asthma or lower levels of asthma just based on the canopy, you know, across the city or across the state. And so where do people who have privilege live? They live in these nice, you know, areas where there are trees and there's ordinances where you can't cut down trees. Well, or I'm speaking, I live in a place where you can't cut down a freaking tree. It's <laughs> my backyard and I have to get a firm yeah. and three yes. people need to sign off on it. Yeah. And so annoying, but it means that the air is cleaner. And so once again, it goes back to that built environment where you live in a place where there is all this traffic and there's exhaust and there's sidewalk and there's no, there are no trees. And so there are higher rates of asthma. And so who lives in those communities? Those tend to be your poor communities. And once again, because of society and because of all of the other things, you know, racism, discrimination, then 
you end up with people of color who are more likely to live in communities where they do have more pollution. They don't have access to healthy food. They don't have places where it's safe for them to go jog in the morning, which once again impacts the health that we see as physicians and as medical students. And so it can be really easy to say, oh, I noticed that population. I'm seeing a lot of this. Oh, well, why don't they eat better? Why don't they exercise? Why don't they do these other things that we know can be healthy for you? But when we're missing an understanding of the social determinants of health and the built environment and all those other things, then it's it's easy to not put two and two together yeah. and to make the wrong and put the, come to the wrong conclusion. And put the onus on the patient as if they're yes. it's their fault for having these conditions, not being in a position to manage the conditions as well. Like you're you're putting the onus on them, even though the it's not there to fix the problem they didn't create. Yes, yeah. to fix the problem they did not create. Exactly. So you had mentioned unconscious bias a couple of times, right? So if we're a physician, let's say we're not, we're a white physician, we're treating a minoritized patient of any background, right? How do we try to hedge those biases so that we can make sure we're taking as good care of this patient as they deserve? So first, you have to recognize and acknowledge that you have biases. And I find that sometimes to be the most challenging thing because for people who identify as white, frequently when they hear bias, they it's so close to like, no, I'm not racist. No one said you were racist. What we said is that you have biases, right? Having biases and being racist are completely different things. But we live in a society where to acknowledge that you have biases openly could completely get you canceled, right? Like it's just not okay to do. And so then you have to internally be like, oh, do I have biases? No, I don't have biases. I treat everyone the same. I'm colorblind, yeah. you know? And it's just like, no, we all have biases. So I think the first thing that I would say is, please, even if the only person you're making aware of these biases is yourself, it is okay to have biases. There is no way that you are raised in America and you do not have biases from the shows that are played on the televisions to the songs to the news the media all of those things are well it's it's how our brains are designed our brains are designed to use biases and heuristics to cut down on the time it takes to make a decision right you make a snap judgment based on your life experience and if your life experience has told you over and over that people that look a certain way have certain characteristics there's no way to just immediately unprogram that and treat everyone the same and think of everyone the same. This is from a lifetime of how the brain was designed to work. So it's like this, we do the same way when we're, you know, trying to figure out a medical problem, right? We have ways that we've developed over time where we think about these problems, right? And to make these snap judgments, it's how we were designed or how evolution designed us. So you, you just, it's just, it's science. Can't, we're scientists here. It's how we work. So we know, right? Everyone who's listening to this needs to just sit with that and acknowledge it. So now we acknowledge it. How do I do better? How do I do better? Okay. 
And I also want to say, because you made a comment, and I may be remembering this incorrectly, but you made a comment about our life experiences that say that a certain group of people, this is how they are. Yeah. And I would like to challenge you on that just a little bit because frequently it's not your life experience or your lived experience because most of us are in a bubble and we surround ourselves with people who are just like us. So we don't actually have experience with people who are other. Yes. We have the news, we have the media, we have all these things that are telling us what these other people are like, but we don't actually have our own experiences. And so that brings me to the place of like, so what do you do? Well, you actually have to go into places and spaces with around people who are different than you. Like it's an active choice that you get to make where you get to decide, am I going to be in these spaces with people who are very different than me? And also understand I might be a little uncomfortable when I do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that actually helps you to understand their experience because by definition, minoritized. They're min- they're in the minority and they're constantly going into spaces with people where they're most people don't look like them. So it I think that just going into those spaces is going to help you understand their experience a little bit. Right. So I will tell you, so this is interesting. So when I'm around when I'm around white men, I can tell white men who are comfortable with black people and those who are not. And so all of the white, and so I know you're furrowing your brow. People may not be able to see you. But so it's really interesting because there's just a certain like level of Botox. The Botox is wearing off. That's all that. that. (laughs) There's a certain level of comfort that people have with people that they feel comfortable with, right? And so typically when, if I'm in conversation with a white man or like a specialist or a different doctor, I can tell the ones who are just very professional, very like, okay, they listen to whatever I'm saying about the patient. They may give me their feedback and they move on. And then there are those who just are more relaxed with me, just a completely different energy, completely different vibe. Well, you use the term professional. I don't think that's what you meant. hmm. I think you mean they're like a little more closed off, right? They're closed off. They're distant. They're they're uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable. So not necessarily professional. Like maybe, yeah, I'm not thinking of the best word either, but yeah, they're just, they're all business. They're all business. They're uncomfortable. Yes. And then the white men who are different, who are comfortable, who relate to me as just a human, inadvertently, there's always something in their personal life that makes them comfortable with a person like me. They're married to an Asian woman. They're married to a black woman. They're married to an Indian woman. They play basketball with, you know, in high school and all of their teammates are black or there's something. They went to a predominantly black university or they grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. And I promise you, without fail, I can tell people who are comfortable with me as a black woman. And every single time it's because in their personal life, they are in spaces and environments with people who are not just like them. Hmm. And so it's one of those things where in this day and age, you can make a choice. You can make a choice to, to whatever your point of interest is, you can make a choice to do it in an environment or a community with people who are just like you or with people who there's something different. And I do take for granted that I, I am in Atlanta 
So there's tons and tons of diversity. And so, and maybe there are places where it's a little bit more difficult to find the diversity. Maybe, I don't know, Utah, Idaho, (laughs) Idaho. I don't know. But (laughs) so I'm making an assumption here that if you have an interest, you can immerse yourself in these cultures. And because I think once you are around people who are different from you and you realize like, wait a minute, we're all just humans. We all have very similar, you know, thoughts and ideas and goals and aspirations. And we're more alike than we are different. Then you, it pushes back against the narrative that is being fed to you by the media, by these other places that we are so different and we are so far apart. And so I don't know how you humanize people who have been othered without spending time with individuals in those spaces. Amazing advice. But where do you go? Like, whoa, whoa, do you, like how do you... Uh, so we, we a couple episodes ago, we had a guest, Raj Sundar, is, has a podcast about just different communities throughout the world. And, and one of the things that he said was, within the community that you are, where you're treating patients, there are millions of cultures but not in your community. In your community, there's probably a handful. And so it makes sense to make the effort to learn about those cultures because you will be able to better take care of those patients. So it sounds like, you know, we should examine who is it that we're actually treating and try and do the work to immerse yourself, go to restaurants in those communities. And so that's my idea. Go to a restaurant. But right, that's the white man solution, right? (laughs) And what are other ways that you can put yourself out there in these communities? So I will tell you as a person who lives in both worlds, I live in a white world and a white world. So I've had to actually be very intentional about my children, you know, in terms of because we live in a largely white community where they're the minority. And so, for instance, when my son, when I wanted him to play basketball, I actually, I took him outside of my community and I took him into a community where the other players were largely black. You know, I had to leave my, you know, five square miles of a city to go elsewhere to look for the community of people who I wanted my son to be around. I go to church. And so I remember because I wanted them to be around more black people, I purposely chose a church that was predominantly black. It was an active choice that I made to be in that community. And I still remember my daughter, who was probably four at the time, saying, mommy, she was looking around at church and she's like, oh my God, there's so many Black people, you know? And it was, so even as a Black person, right, I had to go find Black people because it mattered to me. And so I would say, if this mattered to you, then you would go find the community. So whether you know, whatever it is that you enjoy doing, you can do it in a space where you currently are, or you can choose to do that same activity in another space with people who are different than you. It's just a matter of doing it. I think we're going to have trouble. I, I think we're going to have trouble finding that with our synagogue. We're going to, we're going to have trouble. Okay. So it doesn't have to be your synagogue, right? But just, you know, just, if you, Okay, I was going to say, but if you play soccer or if you play baseball or if you... So one of the things I did recently is I started doing improv. Oh, wow. 
Right. And so the thing about improv, because listen, just because I'm a Black woman doesn't mean that I haven't created like a really nice bubble around myself. My bubble may look different than your bubble, but it's still a bubble, right? And so I joined, I started doing improv. And in this improv class, there were older people. There was like an 18-year-old kid who, you know, still lived at home. Um, there was like a 20-year-old kid who was a check checker at Publix. You know, there, you know, there is a guy who only flies first class and he was just devastated by the fact that he had to fly, I guess, economy when he came back from Hawaii. It was devastating for him. But so I say this to say (laughs) I was in a space with people who I would not ever intentionally be in a socially. It's just not, these are not people who I would hang out with socially. But the thing about improv, this becomes your ensemble. And in order to do improv, you have to be able to connect with the people that you're working with. And so these people were all very different than me. And I was very uncomfortable and I was, and it was hard to go back week after week because I recognize I'm not a snob, but maybe a little you know, and <laughs> it's important to re- to recognize our own unconscious biases. So I'm glad, although clearly it was not unconscious. These were conscious. Oh, these were conscious. <laughs> and I also like there was one guy who he was very much a frat, very much a frat guy. You know, it was just like all these biases that I personally have. And then and the guy who has never flown less than first class like that was just that was a lot. Um But what I recognize is, once again, we would get up there and we would have a scene and the scene would be amazing and you would just, you would high five each other and you would just, you would connect with them and people would connect with me. And you're like, oh, it helped me see people different. It helped me see people differently. And so, so what I will say is there are no excuses. There are absolutely no excuses. If this is something that matters to you, getting into those spaces, and this is not a political podcast, but I will even say I had a conversation, a really long conversation. I was on call one night with a colleague, and he was a Republican. Um, you know, there's a, you got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I, I really, up until now, I've loved everything else you, that you've said, and I 100% agree I'm not sure where you're going here, but I'm not sure I like it very much. But I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> he was, let me tell you, he was a black male physician and he was Republican. And before I knew he was Republican, I only knew him as an amazing guy, right? And so getting to know him as an amazing human being, as a person who, if I needed something, I could go to, if there were a sick patient, he's the one you would want on board. And then having that conversation with him where we were on call one night and it was slow and listening to his viewpoints and why he voted for Trump, why he was a Republican and his belief system. And we spoke for hours and there were times that I wanted to get up and leave. There were times that I was like, this is ridiculous and I see you differently now and I don't know if I want to have this conversation with you because I was being judgy. But then. I stayed. And as a result of that conversation, it changed my viewpoint of not only him, 
but of other people who have made different choices politically than I would make. And so when I tell you there is opportunity for you to do this in every single space, whether it's no matter what the space is, whatever that, because when we talk about like diversity and equity and all of these things, it's not only race, like we're talking about race, but it's not only race. And so the opportunities abound for you to do this and to to stretch yourself. And I think you'd be pretty amazed at the potential when you really lean in. You're speechless. Yeah, I am. I am. I am. I am. I am. So it sounds like you were clearly much more open-minded than, than I would have been in, in that specific situation. All the situations prior, I would hope that I would be, you know, uh, and I should be, right? I should be taking my kids to these other places where they don't just interact with kids that look like them. And actually, that's part of how my wife and I chose our community, how we chose our school district, how we chose where we were going to live. Because one of the houses that we looked at was in a community. So my wife is black. And as a Jew on Long Island, I would have been a minority in this particular, like this is a, a very wealthy very, I think, only Protestant community. Uh, so we didn't buy a house there. So we chose our school district very intentionally based on the diversity. And the town that I grew up in is one of the few on Long Island that has significant both economic and racial uh, diversity. Long Island is so segregated. So it, it was, you know, we didn't have many towns to choose from. But that's one of the, we, you know, I'm realizing now this is something that's important to us to put our kids in these situations where they're going to school with kids that don't just that don't just look like that. And I would hope it's not just because I married a black woman. I would hope this is something that I would have wanted for my children either way. I'll never know cuz cuz I have and this is this is the decision we made. But, you know, I 100% agree and I should maybe be a little more open-minded with political diversity <laughs> as well. You know, we're at the 30-minute mark. I've got so much more that I want to ask you. So I think we might have to conclude for today and then... No, listen, can we do 10 more minutes? Do okay. you have any more time left? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so so one one question. This, but the problem is it's a big question. These are all big questions, right? How do we know that we're using our position and leverage most effectively versus just virtue signaling? or just spinning our wheels? Like, how do we know if we're making a difference? Okay. So one thing I would say is if you're comfortable, you're probably not doing enough. I so, love that. Very simple. Yeah. Right. That, that That's the first place to start, right? Because, you know, there are all these, there are lots of liberal, well-meaning white people who will do a social media post. They will put a Black Lives Matter sign in their front yard. They may even vote, you know, a certain way. But are you making yourself, are you willing to be uncomfortable? Are you willing, you know, when it's you and your family versus the impact it may have on another a family of color, are you willing to take the hit so that a family of color, a community of color may benefit? And so what I find is that most people are not willing to really be uncomfortable. And so when the conversation gets tough, they walk away. When it comes to actually doing something, they don't do it. And so 
I may get in trouble for this. So it sounds but... like sacrifice. So not just putting yourself in com- uncomfortable situations, but sacrifice as well. And there's no sacrifice in a social media post. And I would argue there's there's sacrifice in not putting that post on social media because you everyone else is putting the putting something out there. And if you don't, then you might be looked upon a certain way. So you're doing it in order to be safe. You're doing it in order to be comfortable when you're virtue signaling versus the sacrifice and the discomfort from real change making. Right. And so the place where I train, so I train at a, so the hospital where I train, there are two medical schools there. There is a predominantly white institution, private white institution, and historically black college and university. And so when you look at this hospital, the resources allocated to the white program is very different than the resources allocated to the black program. And one of the things I look at, you know, and I know a lot of people in the predominantly white program, and I know that they want to be allies. How can you be allies when you look and you see that the blacks, the black residents don't have resources, that your call room is three times the size of the room that they're in, that there are so many things that are so unfair and you say nothing. And because of your privilege and your leverage in this hospital, you could actually advocate and say, no, this is not fair. And so we need to figure out a way where we both have equal resources. It is not fair that they're displaced from here and displaced from there. So we are going to share this space until, you know, and that does not happen. It absolutely does not happen. And so there's a hoarding of resources in this space where you could do so much, but people are afraid to do, especially if it means that they may have to give up some of what they have. And so that is another way of knowing, right? Are you giving up anything? Because typically you will have to give up something in order to level the playing field. And so that would be another way that I would say, just to kind of give you an idea, like, am I doing enough or am I just virtue signaling? And the pushback might be, well, this is a different institution. This is, we have our endowment, we have our research grants, we have like, a long history of of benefactors and you know to bring in what you were saying earlier yes because a lot of that money came from plantations that were worked by enslaved people a lot of that came from standing on the shoulders of the people that you are not sharing that with now whereas the historically black college the historically black college hospital you know they started from enslaved people who started with nothing when all these, you know, the great grandparents of the white hospital had something like everything that we talked about in the first episode, really, it seems like it's exemplified by that specific situation. And like, how did we get here? And that's where we are now. And so that's actually, I think that's a great way to end this episode, which is, which the point of this episode was, how do we do something about it? What do we do? And that sounds like the great a, a great answer to it. Sacrifice and be uncomfortable. Put yourself in places where you're uncomfortable. Have uncomfortable conversations, even if it's with a Republican. Have and sacrifice from what you have in order to help others who did not, you know, start the race on third base, you know, or sorry, mixing my sport metaphors, but you get where I'm going. No, absolutely. And I think there's an opportunity on the individual level because, you know, we state macro and didn't really get individual. 
But if you are a doctor and you're white and you walk into a room and there are patients who don't look like you, understanding the historical context and that maybe that patient may not trust you and you may have to work a little bit harder to gain their trust. You may have to spend a little bit more time in that room explaining than you may have to with someone else. And being willing to do that, right? Being willing to build those relationships and to take the time to really invest in this family in front of you and to build their trust. I think that's something that we can do as individual physicians every single day when we walk into a room and there's someone who may be different from us, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's race, whether it's sexual orientation, whatever it may be, just spending a little more time with that individual in order to build that relationship and to build trust. I love it. I love it. So if people want to find you online, Kanika Sims MD, correct? That's the website. Well, Dr. Oh. Kanika MD. Dr. Kanika. Um, yeah, dot com. So D-R-K-A-N-I-K-A-M-D dot com. And so I'm on all the social media platforms as well at Dr. Kanika MD. And yeah, it was great having this conversation with you. I hope we left people with some um, actionable tips and some thoughts and some solutions. This is clearly not everything. It was only 30 minutes. There's so much more, but at least it's a place to start. Well, thank you again for your time and for all that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.